0: we kind of get settled in, oh,
1: there
0: we go. As we kind of get settled in, um, good morning, and good to see everybody. This is the fourth and final week of how to study the Bible. Um, so uh, there'll be just a little bit of review at the end, covering some of the things that we've we've touched on, and then next Sunday will be. Uh, the beginning of the summer quarter uh, starting a new adult Sunday school um, Dr. Munson Mr. Munson, Paul Munson depending on how you <laughs> address him, they'll be teaching on Jeremiah for the adults and uh, there will be a, uh, a combined uh, children's Sunday school class in here and the Jeremiah class I believe will be in the sanctuary so that's what's coming up uh, but we'll we'll just uh, we'll just dive right in. So, all right, where have we been? Uh, we've talked about why we study. We've done some observation techniques. We've talked about interpretation. We'll finish up interpretation today, and at the very end, we'll talk about application. Application is kind of the simplest part of this, in a sense. Uh, so we won't go into a whole lot with that, uh, but we will touch on that. At the end, because if we don't apply what what we're learning and understanding uh, God's word to mean, then then we're we're just readers or hearers, and we aren't actually doers. So we want to get to that part as well. So that's the plan for today. Uh, we'll have some things from last week. Okay, so um, doing some cleanup. Well, actually, before we get to that, one one other thing. So uh, one last book to give away. This is. Uh, Inductive Bible Study by Furr and Kostenberger. Uh, This has been the the main text, uh, the main source for most of the material that we've talked about in the class. Uh, Mostly just some highlights. Not every single thing in this book have we discussed in depth or in the same breath that's covered in here, but it's really accessible. Um, Would anybody like a copy? Last one. Katie, all right. There you go. All right. Uh, So, some good discussions and and follow-up questions from last week, uh, following last week's class, around the idea of how does my theology shape my interpretation? How should it? What's the interrelationship? Should there be a relationship? How does that that kind of work? And so... um, Definitely good things to think about. And so I wanted to revisit that. And I know I call it clean up. Not that it's a big mess. I don't mean to imply that. But just kind of tidying things up and hopefully providing some clarification uh, as we think about that kind of thing. And so these were some thoughts that that came to mind. Um, One is that as you read and observe the text, uh, what what you believe uh, could provoke questions for further research and further consideration. So as we, um, as we looked at John 3.16 as an example text, uh, we could say, okay, I, I believe that God loves his people in particular, and so what does this verse have to do with that, if anything? Like, that would just be an example of taking your theology, reading a text, and saying, okay, well... What, what questions kind of stir up inside me as I read this? And so what can I kind of jot down in my notebook for further consideration and study? Uh, it could be corrective. So uh, if you were to believe something, uh, your, let's say your theology is that I can earn my way into heaven and into God's good favor um, by how I live my life, then... Uh, Then maybe you're reading in Ephesians and you see that salvation is a gift, that it is uh, by grace through faith. Well then, hopefully, uh, you would have a a corrective experience where the text then uh, impacts your theology and you realize, oh, this wasn't true. And so, I mean, in that particular case, then, then go to Christ for, for forgiveness, for salvation. But also believe that, okay, this is actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something else. And so your theology should be shaped uh, by that. Um, your theology could be affirmed by what you read. Like maybe you believe um, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he didn't stay dead in the tomb and just go to, uh, to heaven in spirit form and that his body just stayed in the grave. And you read the text, um, or, or no, excuse me, I'm, I'm talking about affirmation. So maybe you believe that he was raised bodily on the third day. You read that in the Bible, you see that affirmed, and so there's, there's alignment there. No issue. Um, you, could, you could read something and the text has uh, nothing to do with it. Um, it could be unrelated to... Uh, to that particular stance that you have. So not every text addresses every stance that we have on a particular topic, even if it seems like a related topic. But ultimately uh, we want our theology to come from a proper in- interpretation of the Bible and not impose that in it. And so we'll, uh, we'll look at an example in just a second. Um, any, any thoughts on this? Anything anyone would want to add to this list? This was just kind of uh, what bounce around in my head, kind of considering this idea. And if not, that's okay. I also understand it's the first couple minutes of class, and so people might not be warmed up just yet. Yeah, Erica.
2: I just think that number four is just like an important, is like kind of a high point in this thing, because like it can, the Bible is like a comprehensive work, and so like your theology is likely based on like large, portions like synthesized and it can be tempting to try to like use proof tech like to find your theology in places that it doesn't belong so Mm -hmm. like i think like four into five like ultimately like your theology is because of a proper interpretation and that might be a comprehensive interpretation but it's not necessary to like suck something out of a verse that's not there to to say something that it doesn't mean
0: to say, because like authorial intent, like is that what they is that what God meant when He wrote that verse? Right, right. Yeah. So uh, we have all of God's Word. If everything were contained in a verse or a chapter, then that would be all we would need. But instead, we have all of Scripture, and so different parts of it can contribute different things to our understanding on a whole host of topics. Uh, so yeah, we don't have to find everything in one particular verse or passage. So, here's an example. So, let's look at baptism, for say, uh, for example. like Let's say you have a theology of baptism. And maybe you uh, are coming from a paedo-baptist standpoint, or maybe you're coming from a credo-baptist uh, based on profession of faith alone uh, standpoint. And so, uh, you get to Acts 16, and Actually, can we just have uh, two volunteers rather than me do all the talking? One, uh, one volunteer for each, each uh, section here. Kenzie? Okay. One more. Betsy, thanks. Kenzie, would you read the first one? And then Betsy, the second one, please.
2: Okay, thanks. And Betsy?
0: Thank you. Thank you both. So, you come, to the, you come to Acts 16, you read about the baptism of the Philippian jailer and his household, Lydia and her family, and you, you might think, okay, well, uh, I don't want to project this onto you, maybe you wouldn't actually do this. But, theoretically, I, someone from a Pado baptist standpoint might look at these and say, okay, look, uh, we, have the, we have Lydia believing and she's baptized with her household, or we have the Philippian jailer, and he's baptized with his family. It says that he believes. It doesn't say anything about anybody else. Uh, A household would include children or infants. So see, um, the believer and his children are baptized together. Okay. Maybe that's uh, what what someone might read that as. Maybe someone who believes in believers-only baptism would read this and say, okay, well, uh, since, since infants can't um, respond to the gospel in faith and repentance uh, there must not have been any children there because everyone was baptized and so it must just be like older people who are responding in faith and then they're being baptized because they were all baptized and it just doesn't make sense that, that any non-believer would be baptized and so both of these would be would be wrong Like, that's not the way to read this, because it doesn't say anything about if there are children or not. Okay? Um, Could there have been children? Yes. Could there not have been children? Yes. But it doesn't say, so we don't know. It says families, it says households, but it doesn't give us the details of what's in there. So, in, in, in either case, regardless of a person's theology, this isn't the verse... To, or the passage or the chapter to say, oh, okay, this is, this is what I ought to think about baptism specifically as it pertains to children, if they it, if it should be or shouldn't be, or if it should be after a profession of faith or not. Now, could it be part of uh, a larger understanding of something? Could, a, could someone with a, a paedobaptist view look at this and say, okay, well, I see families and households. And so that, that kind of fits in with um, like Abraham and his household or family receiving the sign of the covenant um, back in Genesis. And so I see continuity there now in the New Testament with the whole household, the whole family receiving the sign. And so that, it could fit in that way, but you don't want to say, okay, well, there were definitely children then there. Because that's putting something in there that that doesn't already exist. Now, similarly, um, uh, a believers-only uh, Baptist could could say, "Okay, well, in the second in the second section, as it pertains to the Philippian jailer, like they heard the word of the Lord along with the jailer, and so they had the opportunity to respond in faith." And so, again that could be part of their uh, larger theology and and, um, trying to take different things together to come to a conclusion about something. My point isn't to teach about baptism. My point is just to say, okay, our theology can be one thing, but just because we believe one thing, we don't want to impose that onto the text. Does that make sense? Is that fair and reasonable? Anybody have any comments, questions about this idea of theology interacting with your interpretation? Okay. Hopefully that's because it makes sense and I haven't just confused everyone. Alright, so last week we were looking at uh, John 3.16 and we had looked at a whole bunch of verses... um, where we were trying to understand what world meant Uh, in John 3.16 God so loved the world and we looked at uh, some other passages that world is used specifically the Greek that's translated into world cosmos or or cosmos and uh, we were trying to figure out what could it mean and then we got to the end of the class and I put up there, so what does it mean? In light of the possibilities, what does it mean? Well, I, I kind of, reflecting on that, realized, well, I think I was kind of jumping the gun because we hadn't fully exhausted all of our uh, tools and resources for interpretation. So I was asking you to do something when we hadn't fully gone through the steps. Um, and so that may have added to the confusion, but as, as you'll see, you, there, there's more opportunity for confusion. So, uh, but we'll, we'll work through that together, and that's, that's okay. So I just wanted to let you know that it, just because we had looked at the possibilities, it didn't mean that uh, then we should be able to necessarily come to, come to a conclusion. But some of the, the things that we looked at and looking at context and whatnot uh, could be indicators in our study and, and help us along the way. All right, so wrapping up word studies. so this is kind of where we left off last week when we looked at um, at what things what what words could mean when they appear other places in scripture and so these are some of the pitfalls, some of the errors that we would want to avoid as we do word studies, and so uh, we wouldn't want to um, we want want to think that all the possible meanings of a word apply in every instance and appearance of that word. So, for example, with John 3.16, we we saw that world could mean um, the the human race. It could be all of creation. It could be creation including all of the contents, all the people and and, uh, created things in creation. Um, It could be unbelievers specifically. It could be the pleasures and advantages and, and things of this world, the temporary things. And so every time we see the word world, we don't want to say, oh, it means all these things at the same time, in every case. I mean, we don't do that in English. Uh, we, we talked about the, the idea of um, maybe someone tying a bow on, on, the, on the top of a present and how there's also a hunting bow, uh, a weapon of archery. And so you don't, someone doesn't say, I'm going I'm to put a bow on the top of this present. And someone thinks, oh, well, there, that means all the, all the possible meanings of bow at the exact same time. No, one, one, one particular use is intended by that word. And so the same, same applies when we're, when we're studying the Bible. Not all the um, possibilities apply at the same time. Uh, it, the author intended one thing and was trying to communicate one thing with that particular word. So, uh, not not the full range, but just one specific thing. We also don't want to assume that each author uses each word to only ever mean one thing. We don't do that. Um, other authors in English don't do that. It, it's not the case in the Bible. Uh, we can find John using the word world or cosmos uh, different ways, and so depending on how it's used in context, in a verse, in a passage, um, he he means one particular thing. But it could differ in one place than it does in another. He's not stuck to... Just because his name's John uh, or or something doesn't mean that he only ever uses world one way. Uh, So so there's the same kinds of flexibility as there are in English. That's, again, going back to context and the importance of that, um, that would help inform and help you understand um, what what is meant. And then lastly, just because different words are used doesn't mean that the author intended to communicate different things. Now that might sound confusing. Uh, could someone read Psalm 19, verse 1 out loud for the class, please? Psalm 19, verse 1. Okay, thanks, Pam. Go ahead. So the the two words I think you was, was it telling and declaring or telling and proclaiming telling and declaring okay so some some translations might have proclaim and declare uh, that one has tell and declare so just those are two different words in Hebrew but it doesn't mean that they're trying to communicate different things just because it, it's um, it's uh, like a parallel. Uh, po- poetic type way of explaining something. There's repetition, and so just because he doesn't use the exact same word in both places, doesn't mean that we have to say, "Oh, well, there's there's something hugely significant here that we have to to understand the nuances of each each of these things." The same kind of thing happens in English, where people repeat themselves using different words, and they're just they're just making emphasis. It's it's not. Um, it's not that they're they're trying to communicate something significantly different by just using two different words, so just something to um, kind of help us and and realize that not not every difference means something significant that that requires a lot of time and additional study. so just some some uh, guidelines, some errors, some pitfalls that we might be tempted to fall into. All right. Moving on somewhat from word studies, uh, we'll look at correlation a bit. So the idea that certain passages and verses and ideas uh, don't, aren't limited to their um, being addressed in only one place in the Bible. They appear other places, uh, whether it's the exact same idea or um, something similar on the same topic that just adds to our understanding. And so some resources that, that we could use um, to, to get us there. I mean, a lot of study Bibles will have cross-references cross, cross references in the, uh, the center column or the margin or down at the bottom or something like that to help point you to, oh, this is another place that the editor or author thought uh, the same kind of idea is being addressed somewhere else. So that can help point you somewhere else. I think the first week of class, somebody... Set, when we talked about what are the resources that we have available, uh, when we don't understand what it is we're reading, like I'll look, I'll look at the cross reference and see if uh, what I find somewhere else gives us some uh, some clarifying insight. Uh, we have a book at home. It's called the Treasure of Scripture Knowledge. It's kind of like a concordance, but it all, it's also I, I would say uh, passage or phrase based. Um, It's not just single words like a concordance would be. So if there's an idea that appears in multiple places, it can point you there. So I just thought I'd throw that up. Concordances, we we looked at that when we looked at word studies and where are all the places that this word in this language appears in the Old or New Testament or whatever the case may be. And also, again, biblical literacy or familiarity comes into play here. Uh, so the more you're familiar with the Bible, the more you see uh, a theme or an idea surface as you read through, um, the more that can help you. And, and, and maybe you're reading uh, about the, the baptisms in um, in Acts 16, and you say, oh, well, maybe, maybe you are making a connection between households. And so you want to go back and you want to look at Genesis and, and look at... Um, uh, circumcision with Abraham's household in Genesis 17, or something like that. So uh, the more you're familiar with things, the more you can kind of do some of your own kind of cross-referencing as well and exploring God's Word that way. Uh, I would also... One additional thing that came to mind after uh, after I had made the slide was a systematic theology. Um, and that might be helpful also, because the idea there is that the author is taking... Uh, input on a whole host of or, well, on a whole host of different topics but uh, is, is resourcing the Bible to inform that and synthesize that into a particular stance on a particular aspect of theology and so whether they are just informing you of, okay, this is what I believe and this is why based on the Bible and they're saying, I think this text and this text and this text all inform that that can help you see where this topic is addressed in the Bible. And sometimes they even uh, will address different perspectives than their own and say, well, this is what so-and-so might believe. And these are the texts that they would use to get there. And I think that this has merits because of this, but I think where they go wrong is, is this, this, and this. And they might explain all that. And that might help you as well to see, okay, even if this... These texts don't inform this author's stance. They inform somebody else's stance. And so I can look at those as well and see how that does or doesn't impact um, this topic and what I believe about it. So that, that might be another uh, helpful resource. Anybody, would anybody add anything to this? Um, I'm not the only one with, with ideas. So we want to be able to learn from one another. Yeah. I would just, um,
2: the expectation as we approach Scripture, too, and just seeking the Holy Spirit's wisdom, the Holy Spirit will correlate. There are things that come to mind that, as you're reading, um, He is an invested part of our study of Scripture
0: and asking for that wisdom and expecting. Right. Yeah, right. Yes, absolutely. And I think we talked about this a little bit the first week. Um, uh, just the the realization that uh, any, anything we get out of it, anything we understand, anything that really impacts us, that we understand the significance of, and, and how, it, how God's Word changes us, is by the work of the Spirit. And so kind of coming with that attitude... Uh, prayerful dependence, humility all those kinds of things realizing that it's not just me picking up a text and I don't know, beating myself over the head with it and that it's God applying it to my heart, to my mind and shaping me through it. So yeah, that's a great point. And so a- any, any sort of practical things that we talked about uh, steps and processes and procedures to studying your Bible is certainly not against um, the work of the Spirit to actually apply this to our lives and change us. Um, it's it's ways that we can uh, seek to avail ourselves or expose ourselves to what the Bible says. But if, if the Spirit's not working, then working in us, then it's it's not it's not going to mean anything. Uh, we talked about the. Um, like some secular scholars I think the first week and just how there, there are secular scholars who might be able to get to the right interpretation um, in, in some cases better or more accurately than we do sometimes. But it doesn't have the same significance to them. They don't, they don't say, okay, well, in light of what the author meant, this is how I should live or this is what that means about God and the reality of that as it pertains to me. And, and I should worship or I should live for him or I should glorify him and it just stops at interpretation it's like, like analyzing any other historical document uh, that they might understand but it, it doesn't have the same significance that it does to a believer the spirit's not working on that person through his word so yeah, good point yeah, Erica
2: thinking about what she was saying and what you're saying, like, sometimes, like, as a believer, like, I feel as though, maybe this is I, I doubt that it's just me, but um, like, sometimes studying the Bible can feel kind of overwhelming, because I feel like, what if I get it wrong? Like, couldn't I just have someone else tell me what this means? Because, like, someone else who knows more than me? But remembering that because I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a believer, like, God's Word is living and active, and, like, the God of the universe, the God of all truth, is personally invested in my growth through his word. Like this right. is the means by which I can grow. And so trusting God in that while also remembering that I am a sinner. Like what I bring to the table is like the ability to, to foul it up. And so like being humble in like my Bible study but but being reliant on the Holy Spirit. And not not doing something just because out of fear that I could mess it up.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That's well put Okay, so as we want to compare verses and passages, some, uh, some things might be more helpful than others. Uh, this, Although it says the Stein book, page 34, if you happen to get the Stein book, it, this may or may not appear in the new edition. So if you go looking for this and, and you happen to get a copy, I think that was last week, it might, might not be there or it might uh, be on a different page. Uh, I have a different edition at home. And so this is just basically saying that, oh, for example, if you're reading in Galatians um, and you want to know what a word means or you want to look at, at this idea in other places, uh, kind of work out from the the most relevant to the least relevant. And, and this is like this kind of sliding scale of resources from most important to the least important. Like, if you're in Galatians and you see maybe some other things in uh, other Paul, other letters by Paul, like those are probably your first first places to look. First looking Galatians, then looking at Paul's other letters, and then looking the New Testament, and then work your way into the Old Testament, and then and then out from the Bible. And it, it's not saying that every time you do a word study or you try to understand what a passage means, you have to go all the way down to Time Magazine at the end and some article that you read there or some blog post by whoever on, on the internet but it's just saying that like, where you focus your attention should have the most relevance and significance and importance for that particular text so just realizing how you can kind of work your way out that way so if we were doing this with John going back to John 3.16 and, and world or cosmos um, this is a picture from Strong's Concordance So all the instances of world in the New Testament. And not all of them are cosmos, but most of them are. And so from blue, the blue line on the left column to the blue line in the third column, uh, that's where world appears. That's all all the times that world appears in the New Testament. Now, the... I mean, if you were to squish that into... kind of compile that into just full columns, that's probably about two... two to just over two columns in in this concordance. And so, if you looked at... Now, if you look at the the red boxes, that's uh, usages by the Apostle John. So, he has, like, two down here at the bottom... Uh, about two thirds of the second column, and about uh, about a third of the third column. So, if you kind of move this chunk down to here, that would be about one full column. So, usages of world in the New Testament, John has about half of them. So, he's this is a world a word that is very frequent in his vocabulary, and I think all but maybe three times. Uh, it's the Greek word kosmos, cosmon, some some variation of that. And so, uh, if you were working your way out, like we were just talking on the previous slide, and looking at the maybe the most relevant passages and kind of trying to understand the possibilities for the word world and uh, where that appears and how it's used, then um, starting in the book of John, you would see the most—I mean, that's the red box in the center column, and also like these one or two at the bottom of the left-hand column. And then you could also look at first, second, third John and Revelation. That's this box on the right uh, that has fewer, but certainly not an insignificant number. And then from there, you can go to the other sections uh, that aren't boxed in, where it appears in uh, in the old—or excuse me—in the New Testament. Actually, I need to restate that, because actually, from here, where is it, here, up to the blue line is the Old Testament. So, yeah, okay, so the blue line could have been here, and that would have been New Testament. From here over to there would have been New Testament. From here to the blue line is, is Old Testament. Uh, so as you work your way out, you would just you would note that and see how it's used, and look for the most relevant uh, and helpful helpful places as you did your study. All right. Um, so the last step in interpretation is consultation. And I say last step and, and you look up here and you're like, wait, wait, wait this is like uh, study Bibles and commentaries and dictionaries and like this seems like all the really helpful useful stuff. Um, and in our first week and we talked about okay, well where would you look if you got stuck or uh, if you didn't understand something, one of the answers was the Matthew Henry commentary. We put that up here. And, um, yeah, that's that's really helpful. And I say that these would be kind of the last step in interpretation because if you just jump to this, you're getting someone else's... Uh, someone else has done a lot of the heavy lifting. They've done the word studies. They've done the comparisons. They, they've probably looked at some commentaries themselves, been informed by that. And then they're giving you the interpretation. Um, and sometimes that could be very helpful and very, um, very simple and very faithful to, to what God's word means. And sometimes Not depending on who it is and and what their understanding of something is or isn't. And so, uh, it's helpful to save this to the end because then it can fill in gaps. It can also be something that maybe uh, helps shape your understanding of something a bit. Um, Maybe you say, well, now I looked at this in all of the New Testament and I compared some things in the Old Testament and my conclusion is this. And this particular author just happens to disagree. But maybe there's another one that does agree. And I'm not saying that what you come to by yourself is necessarily right, but I'm also not saying that what you just because a commentator disagrees with you, you are necessarily wrong. So... Do, I encourage you to do the, the hard work if you're especially working, yourself, working your way through something like a passage or a book of the Bible or something. Try to do the hard work and then come, come back with this to see, okay, am I way out in left field? Does no one else, has no one else in the history of the church, uh, any other believer, come to this kind of conclusion? Um, or, okay, this is a sanity check a bunch of other people are kind of coming to the same conclusion that I came to, or oh, I, I missed this detail. Yeah, that that makes sense. I can see how that connection was there, and I just missed it when I did my own study. Some of those kinds of things. But as far as last steps go, I would I would recommend this be the last step, except for uh, maybe the book introduction in like a Bible study, that can give you a helpful sense of the setting, the context uh, in, in which uh, the events take place or that when the author wrote it or whatever the case may be. Maybe a Bible atlas uh, and just getting familiar with the geography and where this is all kind of taking place. Um, many of us in the backs of our Bibles might have the map of, of Paul's uh, missionary journeys. And so maybe we aren't all that familiar with well where exactly is Corinth and where is uh, Lystra and where is this and that and Macedonia and whatnot? and so getting a a sense of where this is taking place around the Mediterranean can kind of help us as we then read through something Um, but in general I would encourage you to use this as a last step and um, I'm not saying that I always use it as a last step sometimes I could be reading something and it's like okay I I really just want to get a sense for what this word or what this verse means somewhere, you pop open a commentary it's very simple, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah that makes sense, uh, and, and move on, but if, you're, if you want to study your Bible then I would encourage re, um, using some of these resources at the end of your interpretation process make sense? fair enough I'm not trying to bind your conscience to use these things last Yes Erica. I think um,
2: the Bible Atlas' one is something that I feel like I forget about doing a lot. But like when at the first week or the second week you talked about like the gaps that we're trying to bridge. Right. And one of them's like geographical I think. Yep. And like I was recently like this is kind of what I'm about to say right now. I was studying in Galatians and I thought that Galatians was like a place. Like, I thought it was, like, a town, like Carlisle. Mm. But then I was, like, "I where is this in relation? And I realized that Galatian is, like, a region. Yeah. And, like, there's so many other places, like, other, like, when they talk about churches that are in Galatia. And, like, that was super, like, enlightening for me. It's, like, oh, I never really looked at an atlas to understand, like, what it was. Yeah. And so... Like, I think that that does bridge a lot of gaps. Like you find out, oh, like Paul talks about, I think it's like Lister or something. I can't remember now. The other mm-hmm. towns, it's like, oh, that's in Malaysia. Yeah. Like, and so it helps you to bridge gaps and it builds biblical literacy.
0: Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, let's see. Okay. So that's consultation. All right. So I know that there were some lingering questions, and thoughts about John 3.16. So we'll we'll kind of apply some of what we saw in the previous slide about commentaries and whatnot to John 3.16 world. We're kind of scratching our heads at the end of last class, so we'll circle back and we'll see if this helps us any. So just kind of running through a few examples. So um, if we were to look at John Calvin's commentary, for example, and we were to look at uh, trying to understand what world is in John 3.16, so I highlighted some sections here, and so he talks about the human race. Uh, he talks about um, the importance of the word "world" and uh, how it's um, uh, where lost my lost my line. Uh, Nothing found in the world that's worthy of the favor of God. He shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all men without exception. So hitting on human race and uh, inviting all men, it seems like he's looking at the human aspect. Um, But he does talk about whole world. So some might read this and say, okay, maybe it's creation and humans, or some, some might zoom in and say it seems like he, he's looking at the human race here. So that's, that's Calvin on World in John 3.16. If we looked at D.A. Carson, uh, and, and I also noted that this section in blue in the middle is something that I saw uh, attributed to B.B. B. Warfield somewhere else. Um, the idea, well he first argues against believing World to be the elect, and then he moves on to say that when when John's using world, he's talking not in quantity, but quality. It's not uh, about the breadth uh, that is loved by God, but the fact that it's fallen and the badness uh, in relationship to, to God. And so uh, it seems that he's looking at the wickedness of people. So again, it seems kind of like the fallenness of man. Maybe Warfield is kind of noting like just the badness of, of fallen creation. And so that's kind of there. some aspects taken from Carson and Warfield on what world might mean in John 3.16. If you look at Matthew Henry, he talks about the love, uh, loving the world of fallen men. Uh, it's a worthless world. The general offer of salvation is made to all. Um, God loved the apostate, lapsed world. So the sinful world, uh, again, it seems like he's kind of focusing on, on the people. Um, just in the fact that he's talking about fallen man and, and apostate, and lapsed world. Um, when you're reading a commentary, there's even some interpretation there that you're kind of working, working with. Uh, some other mentions John MacArthur says the sinful world of humanity so he's focusing on the, the human aspect but I did also want to mention that I was able to find Uh, a a website, and so this isn't just commentaries, it's not just like books that I have on a shelf somewhere, I I also tried to find commentaries on the internet, or articles that would mention what someone said about something, so some of this is like a little bit removed, it's not directly from the author, but it was on the internet, so it had to be true, right? Um, Good, you'll you'll laugh, you're awake. Uh, So it does, I did find mention that John Ellen, Francis Turretin? Turretin? I don't know, someone can tell me. Uh, John Gill and A.W. Pink say that this is believers or the elect in view here with the world. And so if we, if we looked at all these commentaries, have we really made all that much progress from where we were last week and our discussion kind of around the room about what does world actually mean? Uh, what did John the Apostle mean when he wrote God so loved the world? What was in his mind uh, when he was writing that down. And so we might might look at all these uh, additional resources. We did our word study and uh, we, we at this point have done a lot of the research that we can and we need to kind of come to a conclusion like what does world mean? So based on word studies the commentaries which have a breadth of understanding and, and stances. Anybody want to take a stance or change their stance on what they think world meant uh, or w- what world means in John 3.16? No. Okay. Is anybody more confused than you ever were before on world in John 3.16? Okay. <laughs> I take full responsibility for the, the challenges that come with this example. Yeah, Erica. Uh, like, I, one thing that I think is important,
2: like when you're consulting commentaries too, is to understand the process by which the commentator came to that word. Like, for instance, like um, I, I read a book by Carson on called "The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God," which like. John 3.16 has the word love like it addresses love there so like I have a sense for what that commentator, the work that commentator has done in in words around there so like somebody might have a view it would be important to know the work your commentator has done in regards to the word you're looking up because like most people like theologians are going to take a stance eventually on big things but the question is like what work have they done to come to that stance yeah. So it would be important to me if I was going to like decide this, what commentators have done to come up with their interpretation. Right. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I think that that, that can be a helpful aspect of things like commentaries and some systematic theologies where they where they go into the details of the work behind the things that they're saying. And they're saying, okay, well, I looked at this and I looked at the usage here and this is how the author uses these words in other places and if we look at this passage over here we get this particular nugget and that informs this. And they, they, they map out their work for you and I think that that can be really helpful. Uh, but something that's maybe like a commentary on the whole Bible in one volume like they might just be saying this means this. I'm just trying to help you out. Next verse. This means this. Joel. Well, one
1: thing that I've, in my studies, I've come to look at um, is that the New Testament writers aren't using like twenty-first uh, century standards for plagiarizing. Um, right. He's. This is John. He's either quoting Jesus or paraphrasing Jesus. Right. Um, so it's. You know, we talked about, hey, these are all John's usages of the term world. Well, but he's, you know, he, this is, we have quotes around, you know, Jesus' words. <laughs> but sometimes you see the same kind of dialogues that Jesus is doing in different um, Gospels, right? Mm-hmm. But they're not, like, which one's which? Like, what did he really say? Yeah. And, and it's important to realize, well, you know, John isn't necessarily, like, using MLA standards <laughs> and, and plagiaristic. 21st century. I think it seems that they have liberty, and they're using the liberty to, to do it, uh, interpretation and translation and kind of paraphrasing all in one. Uh, because otherwise, you're like, well, maybe did Jesus really like yeah. got it wrong or right? It might not be that. And it's just important to keep that maybe in, in mind as we kind of look at di- different passages that are referring to probably the same event, saying. Interactions that Jesus was doing with particular people, um, because those are Jesus's words, and we say John, but right—is John citing Jesus? Yeah, those are just the
0: thoughts with right it. Yeah, and I mean, some of this is—you take a step back, even whether further back or further up or whatever—the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit of all of Scripture, whether um, whether it's John commenting on something that that Jesus said and he's paraphrasing or whatever the case may be the words that he's using are still inspired uh, throughout throughout the Bible not just the things that Jesus said or not just the things that the apostles captured or or whatever the case may be Um, but yeah we don't have, there there weren't quotes they didn't switch over to red pens when they were like citing someone or something like that Um, it just all kind of runs together yeah, Erica
1: Um. Uh, Also,
2: like, again, like, if you come to the end of the day and you're like, you know what, like, I just think that, like, the best, if if this is you, the best interpretation here is that God loves the people, like, the the people of this world. And you you take out and you say, I'm just not going to go with the elect. You're not conceding that God doesn't have a special love for his elect. Like, that's, that's not, this goes, you're not, you're not saying, like, oh, I don't know, my theology is totally blown to pieces. Like, that, that's not what's happening here. You're just, you're just interpreting this one verse. And you're not in danger of, like, compromising your entire theological scaffold.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah the, the elect would be a subset of humanity. Um, so you haven't come to something where you're like, oh, well, I, I now I'm facing a contradiction that I need to work through and, and try to harmonize something like that. Whoops. Oh, there we go. Okay, good. Uh, all right, so we'll move on to application in the last little bit because we certainly want to get to application and so all this stuff has, has a certain like process flow there are certain steps we observe the text we sought to interpret it or when you're doing this you're doing Bible study you observe it you seek to interpret it and understand what the author intended to communicate to his, his audience, his reader and then we come to application so what do I, what do, I do with this? And so it could be super linear. It could be, well, I observed it. I got the one intended interpretation, the one proper understanding. This is how it's applied. That's fine. Great. Everything's in line. No issues. You could, you could observe it. You could get the one particular meaning. And then you could say, well, this actually can apply a couple different ways. I mean, we talk about, like, love your neighbor as yourself. And the author meant love your neighbor as yourself. But it's like, okay, well, well, what does that mean? Does that mean I, I take him a meal when he's sick? Or do I mow his grass and shovel his driveway? Or uh, do I go over and just befriend him and talk to him like, like I care about him? Well, yeah, y- yes, to, to all and any of those and, and many, many more. So uh, uh, some, something can have one particular meaning, one particular uh, intended understanding, but have multiple applications that flow out in the same direction from that. So... Still good. We're still still on safe, solid ground here. Where we don't want to go is where you understand the text and then you try to apply it in some totally different manner, in, in some direction that has nothing to do with what the author was trying to communicate, what uh, would be the, the actual outworking. If you say, love your neighbor as yourself, and you say, I'm going to go burn his house down in light of this, obviously... You, you've totally gone, gone off the rails um, and it could be something not as drastic and, and polar opposite as that um, but I, I just did that for effect so you just wanted everything to kind of flow in the same direction okay so some guidelines for application um, how did the author intend the original audience to understand this and apply this um, should I know something or do or be something in response? Uh, what, is there an underlying principle here? What boundaries exist of what the text can and cannot mean? And what scenarios exist in which this could be applied today? So some, self, some helpful thoughts when we get to the application uh, aspect of this. Uh, would someone be willing to read Ephesians 5.18? Ephesians five eighteen. Uh, Thanks, Claude.
1: And do not get drunk with wine, for that
0: is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, thank you. Do not be uh, drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, we we haven't done any word studies we haven't uh, consulted commentaries or something but it seems fairly straightforward we might want to understand what be filled with the Holy Spirit means we probably want to dig deeper into that but the first half of that do not be drunk with wine that sounds pretty straightforward right so if we were trying to look at this and we'd say okay how did the author intend the original audience to apply this text so uh, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus um, what does he want them to not do? Drunk. Be drunk with? Wine. Wine. Okay. Easy enough, right? Uh, so is there something I should know or I should do or be in light of what he wrote to someone else? What he wanted for someone else? Yeah, Bob.
1: Right.
0: You know, so, um, I think, uh, the idea yeah, so, uh, and that kind of gets to number three what are the underlying principles? And you're st- tar- talking about like having your mental faculties, and at that time they had wine, and so he mm-hmm. thought wine, he Said wine, the reader would have understood wine, uh, but you're saying like there might be something broader in play than just wine. Okay, Clyde, you want to say something? Jack, I think that we have to understand
1: in, in, in most passages, but particularly in this passage here, is the audience for one thing and the culture that Paul is trying to draw them away from. For instance, in this area, you, they, they were into well, really devoucheries and, and wine and orgies and you know, all this frivolous stuff. Yep. And Paul is, is, is really commanding them to come away from that as a form of worship to whatever God to be filled with the Spirit of the Lord, mm-hmm. worship that exactly. Yeah. So, in all of our application, we have to understand to some degree the context an audience to which the Holy Spirit is writing. Now,
0: it trickles down to us, of course, today. Sure. As this brother said, or whatever,
1: it's Like me, don't be drunk.
0: Right. That's easy to understand. But yep. in the original, what was
1: going on here, these people, the Ephesians, would be drawn away from the pagan practice of being drunk. And
0: right. Yes. So importance of context, both within the passage and also in that particular setting, the audience and, and what's being written and whatnot. Yes. Uh, still i agree with all of what you said both that it's applicable how it was applied to them and how it applies to us still in a different kind of context uh molly i think oh, you had I your hand say up the same thing. okay them out of the pagan cult worship, yeah like, and and, right you know, so he was establishing that you need to worship the true god right There's, there's like a compare-contrast in that verse. It's like, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, kind of seeing the side-by-side and the, the differences there. Um, so, uh, kind of moving down to number five, what scenarios exist in which this could be applied today? We think about drunkenness and we think about, as Bob said, kind of state of mind, and also, um, while he mentioned wine, well, I mean, we have wine today, but we have A whole lot of other things like did Paul have to mention all the other like let's say types of alcohol or drugs that are available that can affect your mind and your faculties in us in order for us to be able to apply that and so I think if we move move into uh, other other forms of alcohol and even other kind of mind altering uh, faculty affecting drugs then we can. We would still be kind of applying this, and still moving in the same direction as the uh, intended message of the author. Caleb. Oh, very often you know, because if you look at the Bible, it often reaffirms itself throughout other passages. And other passages piece of the sober mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, other passages also
2: think of strong drink, not just wine, but of strong drink.
0: Yep. Right. It us that we have right. Yes. Thank you for that. And that, if we were studying this and we had looked at other correlating passages and, and referred to other uh, other things in scripture, then yes, we would have we would have caught that as well. So yes, good point. So, just some some things about application. So over the course of the past four weeks, we talked about why we study, how we can study. Um, through observation, interpretation, touched on application today, hopefully give you some, some tools for that, some either more tools in your toolbox or sharp, sharpen some tools that are already there. Um, remembering that we wanted, as, as Jen mentioned earlier, uh, relying on the Holy Spirit, praying that God would give us understanding, being humble, coming to God's Word and, and learning from it, uh, being taught by it and shaped by it, and And we can also encourage one another in this. We can ask each other, like, hey, are you reading something? Are you studying something? This is what I came across. Um, As we look at some of the same things or different things, we can um, help shape each other's understanding, and uh, we can encourage each other in that. We can be gracious to each other as we kind of work out, like, okay, I think this is the meaning, and I think this is how it's applied, and and kind of help each other along the path that way. And if we come to wildly different conclusions, we can graciously work through those and and discuss how we came to those conclusions with each other. All right. I actually ended before the time is officially out. I have one minute. Any comments, questions, anything anyone got out of this uh, that they found helpful? Yes, Courtney.
2: Hmm. What what neighbors did God give me, and where are they at? And, and so just kind of pushing that application to like practical, like what does this look like for my next week? Because I, I know for me it's like I missed the Bible study and you know maybe it's with a group of people and we're discussing and I'm like oh I'm so excited that's great and then I go back to my daily life and I just hmm. like I forget. Yeah. And
0: this passage and uh, what it means to come to mind as opportunities arise, even if I didn't, I didn't foresee it enough to be able to put it on a calendar and do something be intentional about applying it although that's a good, a good idea like how can this be in my mind continually so that I, I can refer back to that if I haven't an, an opportunity alright, uh, let's pray and then I'll, I'll dismiss Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the time that we've had together over the past four weeks to talk about your word and and how to uh, seek to learn and grow from it. God, I ask that you would work through it, and we know that you do and will. God, um, help us to not only hear it and read it, but to uh, seek to do it and, and have it applied to our lives, that we would understand you more, that we would grow in our affection worship and love for you the most and that we would seek to love others in light of it. Um, God, we ask that you would give us both the desire and the ability to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.